We are in James chapter 4. James today is going to tell us four things. Four things that will help us to live our life in relationship with family, with church, with people at work. And they're four incredibly, as I said before, practical things. And the first one is actually one my mother used to tell me all the time. I was raised in a home with uh, three boys. We don't have any girls in my family. There were three boys. Lots of testosterone everywhere. I was the middle of three boys. We're all about three years apart. And three years apart means you can fight. You can fight with the younger one. You can fight with the older one because, you know, the older one can whip you, but you can get some stuff in there, and then you can torture the younger one. So there was three of us. We'd always wrestle and, and, and do games. We had this game called Six Inches where you put your finger like this on somebody's arm and you punch them, but you can't draw back, and you punch them real hard, and they laugh, and then if not too funny, then you hit each other. And then, so... We would go, and it would get louder and louder, and then the wrestling would turn into something more than wrestling. And then you'd hear a voice from the next room, my mother, say, Boys, stop all that fighting. And we'd insist, we're not fighting. We're just wrestling. <laughs> but we were fighting. Boys, stop all that fighting. And the first thing James says in James chapter 4, verse 1 is, Hey, guys, stop all that fighting fighting. Look at verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You remember when we started our study in the book of James, we, we talked about the fact that he's not writing to one particular church. He's not writing like to the church at Ephesus or the church in Rome. So because he's writing to Christians everywhere, he doesn't really have any advanced knowledge. It's not like he heard that the church in Ephesus is duking it out, and so he's writing a letter to them. He's just writing to Christians everywhere, and he is assuming that they're fighting and quarreling with each other. <laughs> How could he assume that Christians are fighting and quarreling with each other? Well, I think he knows human nature a little bit. I think he knows the power of sin from the fall of Adam, how that impacts every one of us. Well, Pastor Gary, don't Christians believe that, that we should love each other? You bet we believe that. But sometimes our behavior takes a while to catch up to our belief. Amen? Anybody here It's taken you years for your behavior to catch up to your belief? That's what he said. Now, the will of God, of course, is that all Christians live in harmony and they love one another and that that be a testimony to the whole world so that people would see that. They'll know we're his disciples because we love one another. And when we don't do that, think of the impact of it. When we don't love each other, when we quarrel and fight with each other, think about children who watch that going on and grow up and think, I want nothing to do. If that's what church is, I don't want to be a part of that. Think about people on the outside of church who watch that going on and think, I don't want to be a part of that. So he says, Where, what causes these fights and these quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Circle the word desire, because I want to take you back there to that word in a moment and tell you, the Greek word that we translate desire, and it's really fascinating. You desire, but do not have. So you kill. Now, that's hyperbole. I don't think many Christians were killing other Christians, but it could come to that. If you're mad long enough, it could come to that. You covet 
but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Where do these quarrels and fights come from? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? They come from those people over there. My quarrels and fights come from my wife or my husband or the boss or, or somebody else. And James, who's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, says, no, no. Most of the time, they don't come from those places. Most of the time, they come from inside of you, from your desires. Now, the Greek word for that is hedone, H-E-D-O-N-E, hedone. And from that word, we get the word hedonism, hedonism. How many have heard of something called hedonism? Hedonism is a philosophy that says the greatest good in life is my good. The most important value in all of life is my happiness. The most important thing that anybody could do is to please me, make me happy. It's the pursuit of pleasure. It's me first. And hedonism actually has a, uh, its own creed. Uh, it's very short. Uh, if it feels good, do it. He says, where do these fights come from? It's because there is something in you, a philosophy, a, a way of looking at life, a sin that you inherited from your, your great-great-grandpappy Adam, something in you that wants you, not God first and others, but what makes you happy, your way. He says that's where it starts to come from. Now, Christians would never admit it comes from there. When we fight, when we quarrel, I will never say the reason I'm quarreling is because I am a hedonist, <laughs> because uh, I want my way. My way is the most important thing. I want you to make me happy. Please me. Uh, I would never say that because I'm a Christian. So when Christians fight, they use very religious terms. They fight over great causes. They fight over doctrines that are so important that if we believe a little bit differently about, you know, when Jesus is going to come back or a little bit differently about how we baptize. It's got to be uh, in the name of the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. No, no, it has to be in the name just of Jesus only. No, no. So those things are so important that we have to fight and quarrel over them. And James says, mm, that's something else going on here. It's something in you. Now, sometimes when we quarrel and fight, our excuse is we have no alternative. I have to. I have to fight with my spouse because if I give in on this thing, she'll run over me. I have to fight over this because uh, I'm setting some boundaries here, and then if I don't fight over this, then, 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 then I'll never be happy. I'll never get my own way, and, and so I've got to fight. But James says there's actually an alternative to fighting, and it's not what you might think. The alternative to fighting is Praying, which doesn't seem, you know, a natural thing, but it's a supernatural thing. You do not have because you do not ask God. Lord, I don't really like what's going on here. It seems uncomfortable to me. It doesn't seem like I'm happy in this deal. Uh, but, Lord, I'm praying. And, God, I, I bring it to you. Rather than, Lord, try to take my pound of flesh out on them, I'm going to bring it to you, Lord, and say, say, God, uh, you know the beginning from the end. You know about them. You know about me. Lord, I'm bringing this thing to you now. And when you bring it to God, it's not just trying to get your own way. 
The prayer is that God gets his own way. Because he says, when you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. On your own hedone. Your own hedonism. Prayer is never a, a method of getting our own way. And thank God for that. You ever prayed for something to get your own way? I want it this way. And, and sometimes you get it. Later on you think, ooh, I shouldn't have prayed for that. That was the worst thing. Prayer is a way of, of God getting his own way. God I want your good and the good of others. God, can you do that? Lord, that's my, my prayer. So the first thing James tells us is stop all that fighting. Don't think the cause is them. Look inside for the cause. Mm, what's happening inside of me right now? And the second thing he has to say really is the second thing. Uh, my mama said this too to me. And it's this. Choose your friends carefully. Isn't this practical stuff? James is filled with this. Choose your friends carefully. And he starts out with this little phrase, you adulterous people. <laughs> Whoa. Wow, James. You got some insight knowledge on what's happening there with those people, what's going on with them and the neighbor, the guy at work? No, he's not talking about physical adultery at all. He's talking about spiritual adultery. And he's talking to Christians because we're the only ones that could ever commit spiritual adultery because we're the ones, Scripture says, who are the bride of Christ, that we have been betrothed to Jesus. He dies on the cross for our sins, that we're connected to him almost like in a marriage relationship. And if we're not true to him, if we go after hedonism or any other kind of philosophy or belief system, it's like committing adultery. It's a spiritual adultery. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? That means conflict with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, you'll often read in the Bible about being a friend of the world. You'll read scriptures like, love not the world. And when you read that, understand, it doesn't mean the world in the sense that we're walking on the world right now. Uh, we should love that world. Uh, we should take care of it, recycle, all of that. When it says don't love the world, it doesn't mean the people in the world. We're supposed to love everybody in the world. Uh, everybody in the world matters to God whether or not God matters to them. He loves everybody. So when it says love not the world, it's not physical world, it's not the people. It's the prevailing philosophy of the culture that we live in. The way they outside of the kingdom of God do things, that's called the world. This hedonism is a part of that, where it's me first uh, rather than us, rather than God and others. So he says, don't go that direction. Don't, don't be a friend of that system or that way of believing. Don't adopt those philosophies. And already we've discovered in James what some of that looks like. If somebody rich comes into your meeting, uh, don't make a big deal about them, James says. Uh, you know, that, and don't, don't discriminate against other people. That's the way the world does things. The world uh, puts people in categories and has favorites. Don't do that. And then James said, remember about the tongue? He said, be careful what comes out of it. You know, maybe, uh, maybe the philosophy in the world, you can just vent on people, but not in God's kingdom. We're careful what we say. So don't choose to live that way. He's saying choose to live God's way. 
Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us? God's jealous. He doesn't want to share us with the world systems. He doesn't want us to be hurt by going after systems and, and ways of doing things that just produce in the long term death for us. He's jealous. I love that song, He is Jealous for Me. Have we sung that one, Brandy, in a while? Okay, write that down. Because uh, he is, and Scripture says it right here, he's jealous for me. And not in some bad kind of sense, in the sense that I'm jealous for my children. I, I, I want them to, to do well in life, and I don't want other things to impact them and hurt them. So he says, be careful. Now, there's a third message James has for us today. The first two have been incredibly strong um, uh, adulterers, he calls us. You know, don't love the world. Friends with the world. The first is stop all that fighting. And it's tough love. And that's what a good father does. He gives tough love. He speaks the truth. But often in Scripture, after there's something said like that, that's strong, direct, then God stops and just reassures us that, hey, it's going to be okay. You've got to change these things. I'm going to help you change them. And, and we're going to work on this together. So the next thing God wants us to know is this. Humble yourself before the Lord. That he's going to do this work in us. He's going to help us fight these battles with, you know, with our hedonism. He's going to help us you know, choose to, to make God first in our life, others second. He's going to do that kind of work. Our task in it all is to keep humble before him. It says, and he gives more grace. He does. Do you know God is highly invested in you? Jesus is super invested in you. You give your life to die on a cross, that means you're invested in somebody. You love them. You're willing to take their place and suffer for them. And he's not going to give up on us. We might have failed along the way. We might have made mistakes along the way, but he's still working in us. But God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. You want to keep getting God's favor? Just keep walking in humility. What does humility look like? This is what I love. James is going to give us a bunch of things that, that really make up what humility is. Here's the first. Submit yourselves then to God. The first aspect of humility is submission. Submit yourself to God. God, you are the creator. <laughs> I am a creation. You are Lord. I am not. You know, the great act of faith is when we finally decide that he's God and we're not. Lord, you are the Lord. I am not. And this word submission, it, it was used in military terms back then. It's kind of like a, a corporal saying to the colonel, you know, I've submitted to you, uh, the colonel to the general. I'm under your authority and under your orders, and I'll do what you want me to do. So humility is first submission. Submit yourself then to God. But don't think humility is passive. It's not this passive kind of thing. Sometimes humility is aggressive and actually confrontational, but with the right person. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So, yeah, submit to God, but resist the devil. You know, humility in this sense is, is, is I'm not putting up with that. That's wrong. Devil, I'm not going to go your way. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. The devil is powerful, but he's not more powerful than a Christian filled with God's Holy Spirit. 
In Ephesians, Paul told us that we should put on the armor of God, fight against him, stand. So don't think humility is this, you know, weak-looking kind of guy. It's a person who submits, yes, but only to God. To God in this sense, not to the devil. And then he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. So humility also is proactive when it comes to a relationship with God. It doesn't sit around and wait for God to, to uh, you know, make me get up in the morning and pray and, and just, oh, well, whatever God wants me to do. Humility is being willing to, to draw near to God with, a, with an attitude of, Lord, I need you. God, I need you. I'm humbled before you, God. I can't do this without you. Humility also involves repentance. Look at this. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, you have to repent to become a Christian. Repent and believe. But repentance is not something you do one time. Repentance is something you do your whole life. I've told you this before, but the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Meta meaning change, noia your mind. Change your mind. To repent is to change what you're thinking, to change the way you view something, to change your thoughts about something. We think repentance is just about outward kind of things, and it results in outward kinds of things, but it starts in the mind. To repent is to say, you know what? Lord, I think I've been, I've been seeing that I want my way first. God, that's the wrong way to look at this thing, Lord. No, Lord, you said I should have the mind of Christ who, who, who gave himself for others. So, Lord, I, I've been thinking wrong. God, forgive me. Lord, help me to think correctly, Lord, that I'm living for your glory and for loving other people that I'm supposed to love as you have loved me. Once I do some metanoia there, some repentance and start thinking differently, then I start behaving differently. But if you're trying to fix the behaving without fixing the thinking, it's not going to happen, at least not for very long. He says the hands and the heart. Isn't that interesting? Your hands and your heart. Your hands are going places they shouldn't be going, touching things they shouldn't be touching. Repent. Say, Lord, that's not what you designed my hands to do, is it? No, it's not. And if your heart is starting to go after things it shouldn't go after, then the repentance is, Lord, I think I'm drifting. Lord, I'm drifting away from you being first in my life. If you'll do that kind of humility, listen what happens. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Wow. One more thing James wants to say. What's he told us so far in this section? He's told us, um, stop all that fighting. He's told us, what was the second thing he told us? Choose your friends carefully. What's the third thing? Humble yourself. The fourth thing is something probably your mom told you as well. It's this. If you can't say anything nice about somebody, would you like to complete the phrase? Where'd your mama get that? She must have read the Bible. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing she must have gotten it here from the book of James. Here's what he says. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now, today, slander is a legal term. That means a falsehood that damages the reputation of another. And 
as James is using it, it means that, but it means even more than that. It's broader than that. It includes gossip about somebody. It includes speaking to somebody in a demeaning way. It means speaking the truth, I told them, but not in love. Now, slander is actually the devil's forte. It's what he does. Revelations 12.10 says he is the accuser of the brothers. So when we slander somebody, we are stepping across a line. We are choosing a different team. We're choosing to do as the devil would do rather than as God wants us to do. How do you stop slander? Well, I think, first of all, you have to stop it in you. Um, that's a metanoia. That is, you know what? I shouldn't be saying these things about people. I wouldn't want people to say these things about me. It starts here. But I think it also, in a group context, happens when we challenge one another if somebody does start to slander. Now, this is a tough thing, but a man years ago told me something that I thought was profound. This is actually the man who taught me to preach. He said, you know, if you want to stop slander, then when somebody comes to you with a story about somebody else, stop them and say this. You know what? I can see you're really concerned about that, and I understand that. But listen, I'm not a part of the problem. I didn't do it. And I'm not a part of the solution. I can't help him or this situation. So can I encourage you? Go to that person and talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. And if this is really the case, then help them, love them, pray for them. If it's somebody that you can't go to one-on-one, -on -one, then start to pray for them rather than talk about them because you're not a part of the problem and you're not a part of the solution in that particular case either. You know what happens when you do that to folks? They stop coming to you with slander. <laughs> they just, they, they, that was no fun. That was no fun at all. It really wasn't. It was no fun to come up to Pastor Gary and say, did you see what Gabriel did? It wasn't fun. Because when, when I did it, he said, well, let me tell you something. I'm not a part of the problem. I'm not a part of the solution. So you need to go to them. If that was the way groups handled things, if that's the way families handled things, can you imagine your extended family when somebody starts slandering somebody else? If it was just like the, uh, the standard modus operandi that we stopped them and say, you know, and they go, oh, I know. You're not a part of the problem. You're not a part of the solution. You're no fun. Yes, I am no fun. I'm no fun to slander people to because I don't go there. If that was a part of a family, if that way of dealing with slander was a part of a workplace, part of a church, man, slander would die on the vine after a while. It, it wouldn't have any life. There would be no fuel to keep it going. The Scripture says don't entertain an accusation against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. Now, that's a fascinating Scripture. Because it's almost as if you've got to be extra careful not to slander somebody who's in a position of leading someplace. Because when you do that, you damage not just him 
or her, not just his or her family, but you damage the organization, the church, whatever they are involved in leading because dealing a blow to them deals a blow to everybody else. But yet I go on the Internet, and, man, people just get all over this pastor there, and this pastor there, and they make little memes to make fun of them, and they're on this, and, and, and not knowing those people at all. I don't know any, most of those people at all. But, man, folks love to just get on and slander other Christians. One thing we can do is not share those things, <laughs> not passing that thing on because I don't know that person at all. And if it's really concerning to you, pray for them. What are we doing? Would you want someone to do that to you? I've noticed lately a lot of young pastors who are quitting the ministry. Um, it's come to my attention in the last several months, three really fantastic young pastors with a call of God in their life are stepping down from pastoring. And they give different reasons, stress, whatever. But it's hard when people are slandering folks. It's hard on their family, their wife, their kids. I think we need leaders in a church, especially young leaders. And if they're going to continue on, then we have to kind of decide we're going to do what James said do. <laughs> we're going to talk good about them and encourage them and say, way to go, boy!" unless we're part of the problem or part of the solution. Ben, would you come back up, please? Well, how do we do all these things? Uh, be careful who you make friends with. Don't love the world. Don't be friends with the world. Um, stop all that fighting. Yes, this, this hedone in me wants my way all the time. How do I get over that? How do I, how do I think differently about that? Um, uh, if I can't say anything nice, Lord, I got a big mouth, and, and God help me. And How do we do these things that James told us to do? Well, change happens not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That's where change happens. It always does. From the inside out means that, God, I want you to change here my way of thinking about people, my way of viewing other people. God, I want you to change systems I've developed, philosophies, what the culture has put in my mind, Lord. And, God, I want to think the way you think. And the Holy Spirit, I want you to take that and is. You do what only you can do. Change me from the inside out so that I find myself a couple of years from now thinking, you know what? I don't slander people like I used to. <laughs> what, what changed? God changed me. I find myself a couple of years from now, and I'm not fighting with everybody anymore. How come I'm not fighting so much anymore? Change happened from the inside out. If that's your prayer this morning, let's stand to our feet and Let's sing this song, God, change me from the inside out. <laughs>